Section 23 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 16, Birds Concluded, Part 3. It may be worth while to illustrate the above three modes by which, in the present class, the two sexes and the young may have come to resemble each other by the curious case of the genus Passer. I am indebted to Mr. Blythe for information in regard to this genus. The sparrow of Palestine belongs to the subgenus Petronia. In the house sparrow, P. domesticus, the male differs much from the female and from the young. The young and the females are alike, and resemble to a large extent both sexes and the young of the sparrow palestine, P. brachydactylus, as well as of some allied species. We may therefore assume that the female and the young of the house sparrow approximately show us the plumage of the progenitor of the genus. Now with the tree sparrow, P. montanus, both sexes and the young closely resemble the male of the house sparrow, so that they have all been modified in the same manner, and all depart from the typical colouring of their early progenitor. This may have been effected by a male ancestor of the tree sparrow having varied, firstly, when nearly mature, or secondly, whilst quite young, and by having in either case transmitted his modified plumage to the females and the young, or thirdly, he may have varied when adult and transmitted this plumage to both adult sexes, and owing to the failure of the law of inheritance at corresponding ages, at some subsequent period to his young. It is impossible to decide which of these three modes has generally prevailed throughout the present class of cases, that the males varied whilst young and transmitted their variations to their offspring of both sexes is the most probable. I may here add that I have, with little success, endeavoured, by consulting various works, to decide how far the period of variation in birds has generally determined the transmission of characters to one sex or to both. The two rules, often referred to, namely that variations occurring late in life are transmitted to one and the same sex, whilst those which occur early in life are transmitted to both sexes, apparently hold good in the first, for instance, the males Tanarga estiva and Frigella cyanea, require three years, the male of Fringillaceris four years, to complete their beautiful plumage. The harlequin duck takes three years. The male of the gold pheasant, as I hear from Mr. Jenner Weir, can be distinguished from the female when about three months old, but he does not acquire his full splendor until the end of September in the following year. Second, and fourth classes of cases, but they fail in the third, 
often the fifth. Thus the Ibis tantalus and Grus americanus take four years, the Flamingo several years, and the Ardea ludovicana two years before they acquire their perfect plumage, and in the sixth small class. They apply, however, as far as I can judge, to a considerable majority of the species, and we must not forget the striking generalization by Dr. W. Marshall with respect to the protuberances of the heads of the birds. Whether or not the two rules generally hold good, we may conclude from the facts given in the eighth chapter that the period of variation is one important element in determining the form of transmission. With birds, it is difficult to decide by what standard we ought to judge of the earliness or lateness of the period of variation, whether by the age in reference to the duration of life, or to the power of reproduction, or to the number of molts through which the species passes. The molting of birds, even within the same family, sometimes differs much without any assignable cause. Some birds molt so early that nearly all the body feathers are cast off before the first wing feathers are fully grown, and we cannot believe that this was the primordial state of things. When the first period of molting has been accelerated, the age at which the colors of the adult plumage are first developed will falsely appear to us to be earlier than it really is. This may be illustrated by the practice followed by some bird fanciers who pull out a few feathers from the breast of nestling bullfinches and from the head or neck of young gold pheasants in order to ascertain their sex. For in the males, these feathers are immediately replaced by colored ones. The actual duration of life is known but in few birds, so that we can hardly judge by this standard. And with reference to the period at which the power of reproduction is gained, it is a remarkable fact that various birds occasionally breed whilst retaining their immature plumage. The ibis tantalus takes four years to come to full maturity, but sometimes breeds in the second year. The grus americanus takes the same time, but breeds before acquiring its full plumage. The adults of Ardea carulia are blue, and the young white, and white, mottled, and mature bluebirds may all be seen breeding together but Mr. Blythe informs me that certain herons apparently are dimorphic, for white and colored individuals of the same age may be observed. The harlequin duck, Anis histrionica, Lynn, takes three years to acquire its full plumage, though many birds breed in the second year. The white-headed eagle, Falco leucocephalius, is likewise known to breed in its immature state. Some species of Oriolus, according to Mr. Blythe and Mr. Swinhoe, likewise breed before they attain their full plumage. The fact of birds breeding in their immature plumage seems opposed to the belief that sexual selection has played as important a part, as I believe it has, 
in giving ornamental colours, plumes, etc., to the males, and, by means of equal transmission, to the females of many species. The objection would be a valid one, if the younger and less ornamented males were as successful in winning females and propagating their kind as the older and more beautiful males but we have no reason to suppose that this is the case. Audubon speaks of the breeding of the immature males of Ibis tantalus as a rare event, as does Mr. Swinhoe, in regard to the immature males of Oriolus. If the young of any species in their immature plumage were more successful in winning partners than the adults, the adult plumage would probably soon be lost, as the males would prevail which retained their immature dress for the longest period, and thus the character of the species would ultimately be modified. Other animals, belonging to quite distinct classes, are either habitually or occasionally capable of breeding before they have fully acquired their adult characters. This is the case with the young males of the salmon. Several amphibians have been known to breed whilst retaining their larval structure. Fritz Muller has shown that the males of several amphipod crustaceans become sexually mature whilst young, and I infer that this is a case of premature breeding because they have not as yet acquired their fully developed claspers. All such facts are highly interesting, as bearing on one means by which species may undergo great modifications of character. If, on the other hand, the young never succeed in obtaining a female, the habit of early reproduction would perhaps be sooner or later eliminated from being superfluous and entailing waste of power. The plumage of certain birds goes on increasing in beauty during many years after they are fully mature. This is the case with the train of the peacock, with some of the birds of paradise, and with the crest and plumes of certain herons, for instance, the Ardia ludovicana. Dr. Marshall thinks that the older and more brilliant males of birds of paradise have an advantage over the younger males. But it is doubtful whether the continued development of such feathers is the result of the selection of successful beneficial variations, though this is the most probable view with birds of paradise, or merely of continuous growth. Most fishes continue increasing in size as long as they are in good health and have plenty of food, and somewhat similar law may prevail with the plumes of birds. Class 5. When the adults of both sexes have a distinct winter and summer plumage. Whether or not the male differs from the female, the young resemble the adults of both sexes in their winter dress, or much more rarely in their summer dress, or they resemble the females alone, or the young may have an intermediate character, or again they may differ greatly from the adults in both their seasonal plumages. The cases in this class are singularly complex. Nor is this surprising, 
as they depend on inheritance limited in a greater or less degree in three different ways namely by sex age and the season of the year in some cases the individuals of the same species pass through at least five distinct states of plumage with the species in which the male differs from the female during the summer season alone or which is rarer during both seasons the young generally resemble the females as with the so-called goldfinch of north america and apparently with the splendid maluri of australia with those species the sexes of which are alike during both summer and winter the young may resemble the adults firstly in their winter dress secondly and this is of much rarer occurrence in their summer dress thirdly they may be intermediate between these two states and fourthly they may differ greatly from the adults at all seasons we have an instance of the first of these four cases in one of the egrets of india bufus coromandus in which the young and the adults of both sexes are white during the winter the adults becoming golden buff during the summer with the gaper anastomus oscitans of india we have a similar case but the colours are reversed for the young and the adults of both sexes are grey and black during the winter the adults becoming white during the summer as an instance of the second case the young of the razorbill alcatorda lynn in an early state of plumage are coloured like the adults during the summer and the young of the white-crowned sparrow of north america fringilla leucophries as soon as fledged have elegant white stripes on their heads which are lost by the young and the old during the winter with respect to the third case namely that of the young having an intermediate character between the summer and winter adult plumages yarrell insists that this occurs with many waders lastly in regard to the young differing greatly from both sexes in their adult summer and winter plumages this occurs with some herons and egrets of north america and india the young alone being white i will make only a few remarks on these complicated cases when the young resemble the females in their summer dress or the adults of both sexes in their winter dress the cases differ from those given under classes one and three only in the characters originally acquired by the males during the breeding season having been limited to their transmission to the corresponding season when the adults have a distinct summer and winter plumage and the young differ from both the case is more difficult to understand we may admit as probable that the young have retained an ancient state of plumage we can account by sexual selection for the summer or nuptial plumage of the adults but how are we to account for their distinct winter plumage if we could admit 
that this plumage serves in all cases as a protection, its acquirement may be a simple affair. But there seems no good reason for this admission. It may be suggested that the widely different conditions of life during the winter and summer have acted in a direct manner on the plumage. This may have had some effect, but I have not much confidence in so great a difference as we sometimes see between the two plumages, having been thus caused. A more probable explanation is that an ancient style of plumage, partially modified through the transference of some characters from the summer plumage, has been retained by the adults during the winter. Finally, all the cases in our present class apparently depend on characters acquired by the adult males, having been variously limited in their transmission according to age, season, and sex. But it would not be worth while to attempt to follow out these complex relations. Class 6 The young in their first plumage differ from each other according to sex, the young males resembling more or less closely the adult males, and the young females more or less closely the adult females. The cases in the present class, though occurring in various groups, are not numerous. Yet it seems the most natural thing that the young should at first somewhat resemble the adults of the same sex, and gradually become more and more like them. The adult male blackcap, Sylvia atricapilla, has a black head, that of the female being reddish-brown, and I am informed by Mr. Blythe that the young of both sexes can be distinguished by this character even as nestlings. In the family of thrushes, an unusual number of similar cases have been noticed. Thus the male blackbird, Turtus marula, can be distinguished in the nest from the female. The two sexes of the mockingbird, Turtus polyglottus, Lynn, differ very little from each other, yet the males can easily be distinguished at a very early age from the females by showing more pure white. The males of a forest thrush and of a rock thrush, Oracetes erythrogastra and Petrocincla cyanea, have much of their plumage of a fine blue, whilst the females are brown, and the nestling males of both species have their main wing and tail feathers edged with blue, whilst those of the females are edged with brown. In the young blackbird, the wing feathers assume their mature character and become black after the others. On the other hand, the two species just named the wing feathers become blue before the others. The most probable view with reference to the cases in the present class is that the males, differently from what occurs in class one, have transmitted their colors to their male offspring at an earlier age than that which they were first acquired. For if the males had varied whilst quite young, their characters would probably have been transmitted to both sexes. The following additional cases may be mentioned. The young males of Tanagra rubra can be distinguished from the young females, 
and so it is within the nestlings of a blue nuthatch dendrophila frontalis of india mr blythe also informs me that the sexes of the stone chat saxicola rubicola are distinguishable at a very early age mr salvin gives the case of a humming-bird like the following one of eustephanus in aetheris polytmus a humming-bird the male is splendidly coloured black and green and two of the tail feathers are immensely lengthened the female has an ordinary tail and inconspicuous colours now the young males instead of resembling the adult female in accordance with the common rule begin from the first to assume the colours proper to their sex and their tail feathers soon become elongated i owe this information to mr gould who has given me the following more striking and as yet unpublished case two hummingbirds belonging to the genus and stephanus both beautifully coloured inhabit the small island of juan fernandez and have always been ranked as specifically distinct but it has lately been ascertained that the one which is of a rich chestnut-brown colour with a golden-red head is the male whilst the other which is elegantly variegated with green and white with a metallic green head is the female now the young from the first somewhat resemble the adults of the corresponding sex the resemblance gradually becomes more and more complete in considering this last case if as before we take the plumage of the young as our guide it would appear that both sexes have been rendered beautiful independently and not that one sex has partially transferred its beauty to the other the male apparently has acquired his bright colours through sexual selection in the same manner as for instance the peacock or pheasant in our first class of cases and the female in the same manner as the female rhynchaea or turnix in our second class of cases but there is much difficulty in understanding how this could have been effected at the same time with the two sexes of the same species mr salvin states as we have seen in the eighth chapter that with certain hummingbirds the males greatly exceed the females in number whilst the other species inhabiting the same country the females greatly exceed the males if then we might assume that during some former lengthened period the males of the juan fernandez species had greatly exceeded the females in number but that during another lengthened period the females had far exceeded the males we could understand how the males at one time and the females at another might have been rendered beautiful by the selection of the brighter coloured individuals of either sex both sexes transmitting their characters to their young at a rather earlier age than usual whether this is the true explanation i will not pretend to say but the case is too remarkable to be passed over without notice we have now seen in all six classes that an intimate relation exists between the plumage of the young and the adults either of one sex or both 
these relations are fairly well explained on the principle that one sex this being the great majority of cases the male first acquired through variation and sexual selection bright colours or other ornaments and transmitted them in various ways in accordance with the recognized laws of inheritance why variations have occurred at different periods of life even sometimes with species of the same group we do not know but with respect to the form of transmission one important determining cause seems to be the age at which the variations first appear from the principle of inheritance at corresponding ages and from any variations in colour which occurred in the males at an early age not being then selected on the contrary being often eliminated as dangerous whilst similar variations occurring at or near the period of reproduction have been preserved it follows that the plumage of the young will often have been left unmodified or but little modified we thus get some insight into the colouring of the progenitors of our existing species in a vast number of species in five of our six classes of cases the adults of one sex or of both are bright coloured at least during the breeding season whilst the young are invariably less brightly coloured than the adults or are quite dull coloured for no instance is known as far as i can discover of the young of dull coloured species displaying bright colours or of the young of bright coloured species being more brilliant than their parents in the fourth class however in which the young and the old resemble each other there are many species though by no means all of which the young are bright coloured and as these form old groups we may infer that their early progenitors were likewise bright with this exception if we look to the birds of the world it appears that their beauty has been much increased since that period of which their immature plumage gives us a partial record on the colour of the plumage in relation to protection it will have been seen that i cannot follow mr wallace in the belief that dull colours when confined to the females have been in most cases specially gained for the sake of protection there can however be no doubt as formerly remarked that both sexes of many birds have had their colours modified so as to escape the notice of their enemies or in some instances so as to approach their prey unobserved just as owls have had their plumage rendered soft that their flight may not be overheard mr wallace remarks that it is only in the tropics among forests which never lose their foliage that we find whole groups of birds whose chief colour is green it will be admitted by every one who has ever tried how difficult it is to distinguish parrots in a leaf-covered tree nevertheless we must remember that many parrots are ornamented with crimson 
blue and orange tints which can hardly be protective woodpeckers are eminently arboreal but besides green species there are many black and black and white kinds all the species being apparently exposed to nearly the same dangers it is therefore probable that with tree-haunting birds strongly pronounced colors have been acquired through sexual selection but that a green tint has been acquired oftener than any other from the additional advantage of protection in regard to birds which live on the ground every one admits that they are colored so as to imitate the surrounding surface how difficult it is to see a partridge snipe woodcock certain plovers larks and nightjars when crouched on the ground animals inhabiting deserts often the most striking cases for the bare surface affords no concealment and nearly all the smaller quadrupeds reptiles and birds depend for safety on their colors mr tristram has remarked in regard to the inhabitants of the sahara that all are protected by their isabelline or sand color dr rolfs however remarks to me in a letter that according to his experience of the sahara this statement is too strong calling to my recollection the desert birds of south america as well as most of the ground birds of great britain it appeared to me that both sexes in such cases are generally colored nearly alike accordingly i applied to mr tristram with respect to the birds of the sahara and he has kindly given me the following information there are twenty-six species belonging to fifteen genera which manifestly have their plumage colored in a protective manner and this coloring is all the more striking as with most of the birds it differs from that of their cogeners both sexes of thirteen out of the twenty-six species are colored in the same manner but these belong to genera in which this rule commonly prevails so that they tell us nothing about the protective colors being the same in both sexes of desert birds of the other thirteen species three belong to genera in which the sexes usually differ from each other yet here they have the sexes alike in the remaining ten species the male differs from the female but the difference is confined chiefly to the under surface of the plumage which is concealed when the bird crouches on the ground the head and back being the same sand-colored hue in the two sexes so that in these ten species the upper surfaces of both sexes have been acted on and rendered alike through natural selection for the sake of protection whilst the lower surfaces of the males alone have been diversified through sexual selection for the sake of ornament here as both sexes are equally well protected we clearly see that the females have not been prevented by natural selection from inheriting the colors of their male parents so that we must look 
to the law of sexually limited transmission. In all parts of the world, both sexes of many soft-billed birds, especially those which frequent reeds or sedges, are obscurely colored. No doubt, if their colors had been brilliant, they would have been much more conspicuous to their enemies. But whether their dull tints have been specially gained for the sake of protection, seems, as far as I can judge, rather doubtful. It is still more doubtful whether such dull tints can have been gained for the sake of ornament. We must, however, bear in mind that male birds, though dull-colored, often differ much from their females, as with the common sparrow. And this leads to the belief that such colors have been gained through sexual selection, from being attractive. Many of the soft-billed birds are songsters, and a discussion in a former chapter should not be forgotten, in which it was shown that the best songsters are rarely ornamented with bright tints. It would appear that female birds, as a general rule, have selected their mates either for their sweet voices or gay colors, but not for both charms combined. Some species, which are manifestly colored for the sake of protection, such as the jack-snipe, woodcock, and nightjar, are likewise marked and shaded, according to our standard of taste, with extreme elegance. In such cases, we may conclude that both natural and sexual selection have acted co-jointly for protection and ornament. Whether any bird exists which does not possess some special attraction by which to charm the opposite sex may be doubted. When both sexes are so obscurely colored that it would be rash to assume the agency of sexual selection, and when no direct evidence can be advanced showing that such colors serve as a protection, it is best to own complete ignorance of the cause, or, which comes to nearly the same thing, to attribute the result to the direct action of the conditions of life. End of section 23